There's a new Office of Election Security in Florida. You may recognize its leader. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Peter Antonacci has worked in many different state jobs. Now he's been tapped by the governor to be Florida's top elections cop. The state claims it'll keep elections secure. Critics say it's about disenfranchising certain voters. Also, we're going to learn about the CERT program. It trains community volunteers to become valuable assets after big storms and during emergencies. Finally, John Hammer here. Yeah, all right, who is it? It's, uh, I demand to know. This is my town. I got to break the story. Hank Goldberg became one of the biggest names in sports television and radio in Miami these past 50 years. The legendary reporter died recently, and we're remembering his broadcast legacy. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for joining us. Florida's new election police has its first ever leader. The Office of Election Crimes and Security was created just this year, championed by Governor Ron DeSantis and his administration. It's going to be led by a familiar figure. Pete Antonacci is an attorney who has held multiple in important government positions in Florida throughout the years. From his role as Palm Beach County State Attorney to Broward Supervisor of Elections and many more public service jobs in between. Joining us now is Gary Finout, reporter with Politico covering politics and policy. Gary, always a pleasure. You know what? I wanted to start with um, basically uh, getting an understanding of what this new position is. The Office of Election Crimes and Security. What's the purpose of this, of this position? Well, the purpose of this position is it's, it's to head this new office. It's called the Office of Elections, Crimes, and Security. And it was set up uh, this past year, and it's got funding uh, from the legislature. And, and it, it's going to work in concert with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Uh, basically, there's going to be uh, some uh, positions in the Department of State, and they're going to be people who are going to investigate allegations of various, uh, various types. Uh, part of what they're going to do is there is a there's a voter fraud hotline that people can call and 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 that's part of what their duties are. But uh, but beyond that, it's going to be kind of interesting to see what they actually wind up doing, uh, because uh, while a lot of the focus on the creation of this office had to do with voter fraud and, and, and things of that nature, uh, when you look at the statute itself, it's kind of a little bit open ended suggesting that this office could investigate uh, all sorts of things involving violations of election law well, does and not it, just issues of voter fraud. Yeah. Does, I mean, does it have any limits, you know, limitations of well, power? Yeah, no, it, has, it has some limits. I mean, the, the, uh, there's a couple of limits. The, the, there's the limit. First, of course, it's it. The election code covers a lot of different stuff, everything from voter registration to gathering petition signatures uh, to the act of voting itself. But, uh, you know, the campaign finance stuff is also in that same set of statutes. Now, this became a point that was sort of discussed where legislators kept saying, well, no, that's not our intent. We don't you know, that's not really what this is about. But if you look at the actual law itself, it says that they have the power to look at things involving the whole Florida election code. So I think we're going to remain to see as to as, as to as to how that all plays out. Now, I think it's important to to note that um, while we can have a well, there is a debate as to the extent of voter fraud in Florida, and 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 what's going on. 
what is the case is that a lot of times these cases get bounced around in all different kinds of places. Uh, there currently is some been some voter fraud investigations related to 2020 that had to do with people registering to vote and voting as to whether or not they had their rights restored under Amendment 4 or whether or not they were supposed to still be uh, disqualified. Yeah. Well, that investigation was handled three or four different ways. Some of it was handled by state attorneys. Some of it was handled, uh, some of the cases went to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. So there is, in, in some instance here in Florida, there's not been a centralized place for all this to be. Now, that said, this law still says other, other law enforcement authorities, i.e. a local prosecutor, still have the authority to look into election cases. But we now have a centralized place for it. Okay, I see. Now, th- this, this was championed by the governor. Why did right. he want it so much? Well, uh, I, 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 it, it would, the governor's actions and his desire to push this came around the same time that you had some Republican groups around the state agitating for a full-blown forensic audit like the ones that were done in Arizona. And they were basically raising questions as to you know baseless allegations about widespread voter fraud in Florida which the governor himself and the secretary of state said, no, we, we did. We did the normal random audits following the election. Everything was fine. But you had all these other people who were saying, including like some local uh, county party organizations, I, I believe Seminole County was one of them that said, no, we want a full blown audit. So the governor came in and said, I'm going to form this unit and we're going to create the special unit to look at voter fraud. And it's going to be in place for the 2022 elections. And he basically has sold it as I want everyone to have confidence in what's going on. So, I mean, but look, every like looking back at 2020 and like any election, there's going to be some fraud. But in, in 2020, really, didn't we hear back from, you know, pretty much every supervisor of elections that it was actually a pretty simple election? It was Everything, very smooth. It, very it smooth. was very smooth. It was very smooth. Uh, notwithstanding these, uh, you know, these these cases that have that have sort of percolated up in the last couple of months. Yes, everything indicates that for the most part, uh, the things went well. Now, that there were some other things that were going on in the last couple of years that also, since 2020, that and not worth going into, a lot of questions about the petition gathering that went on with a couple of these proposed right. gambling amendments and everything like that, and whether or not that was a fraudulent effort. But, but the point is for the 2020 election, no, you're absolutely correct. It did go rather smoothly, and you had all these supervisors who actually, uh, in the last two years, have been a little bit chagrined because they felt like they did a good job, yet the legislature and the governor pushed through changes, including one that allows supervisors to now be subject to large fines if they're viewed to be not following the law. So the supervisors are like, well, we did a great job, and this is our reward. Some Democrats— have expressed concerns that this office could lead to voter confusion, put up barriers on voting. Do any of those claims have any grounds? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's too early to, to, to tell because, I mean, literally, the we, Pete Antonacci just got hired. The agency didn't, the this office didn't become, come into existence until July 1st. So they're in the matter of staffing up, getting under uh, underway, and I think it's just going to be seen exactly how this power is used. Now, I mean, you have some, you have some people like uh, Nikki Freed who expressed uh, uh, 
skepticism and misgivings about the hiring of Mr. Antonacci, given his his track record. You have other people, though. You have other people, like including some Democratic uh, officials who say, you know, well, Pete Antonacci was a former election supervisor in Broward. We uh, we 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 at least have some thought that this is somebody who is 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 going to come in and, you know, follow the law. do the job. Yeah, I want to get to 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 Mr. Antonacci here in a second. Just real quickly, though. Is there any chance, you know, there's some concern that this office could impact elections more than that, that it could be abused? I'm, let me just come up with a, a scenario here. I mean, this last election, you know, we, we heard people say there's the belief on one side that the, the election was stolen. And so there were calls for all these audits, like in Arizona and a few other states, um, that this concern that this office could be abused in some way. What have you heard about that? I think the concern that I think I've heard privately from some supervisors is whether or not this office will be used to sort of be a hammer against them and their performance. I see. Uh, and, and, and what, and I understand now I know that there are, and I know that some of the democratic legislators have said they're fearful that complaints and, and accusations will be leveled at voters in particular communities, especially communities of color, and they're they're concerned that they will be targeted by this office. Again, I, I it's just we've the office is created. It's got you know people in the Department of State. There's invest sworn investigators in the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. I will say the legislature made that little. They did make that tweak. The governor wanted sworn investigators in the Department of State. The Secretary of State reports directly to him. The head of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement technically reports to the governor and the cabinet. And you have the legislature that said, well, if there's going to be sworn investigators, people who can actually pursue this, we want them to at least be uh, in a professional law enforcement agency and not have their own complete independent unit inside of the Department of State. I got you. Again, I'm talking with Gary Finout, reporter with Politico, covering politics and policy. We're talking about the state's new Office of Election Crimes and Security. Uh, It's been dubbed Florida's election police. It's being led by Pete Antonacci, a figure who's held a number of influential positions around the state. Folks in Broward County will recognize the name. Find out more or find more of uh, Gary's reporting on this on our social media, WLRN. Sundial. All right, so let's talk about uh, Mr. Antonacci. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about him. He's got a, a very extensive background, um, deep ties to the former governor, Republican Governor Rick Scott. Um, what else don't we know about this guy? Well, his 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 uh, he's in his seventies, and his uh, you know record goes back quite a ways. He, he actually was a top deputy to uh, Attorney General Bob Butterworth who was the last Democrat to hold the position of attorney general in Florida. And so he goes all the way back to working, you know, so decades in state government. And then um, he spent some time in, in, in the private sector, but he, he sort of became Rick Scott's go-to person. And um, he was Rick Scott's general counsel. Uh, Then Rick Scott, uh, then he was, then he was the Palm beach state attorney. Then he went into the South Florida water management district uh, and then we had the, you know, the decision to put him in the Broward County Supervisor's uh, Elections Office, which just for a brief rollback uh, for everyone to remember, 
you had you had Brenda Snipes, and basically uh, the go- Governor Scott removed her from office, even though she said she was resigning, following everything that went on with the recount in 2018. Then she sued. She kind of won at the first level, and then there was an agreement worked out. But long the long story short is Antonacci was appointed by Scott to fill out the job heading into the 2020 elections. And by most accounts, everything went relatively smoothly in Broward County as well with the elections. Uh, Broward County has had issues over the years, as we all, well, uh, people know. But so he's done all these different jobs for Rick Scott. And then then he, for the last two years, he's been the chief judge of the Division of Administrative Hearings, which is a somewhat important, but uh, but a, but kind of deep in the bowels of bureaucracy of Tallahassee. It's not an entity that many many regular folks would have any uh, any interaction with, but it's basically it's like if you want to if you want to challenge an action by the state government and and, and assert that they've done something that violates the law or, or oversteps their authority, you take the dispute to the division of administrative hearings. I mean, so all this, I mean, all these different jobs that he's had, and you look at the different places he's been, and you've talked about this in your reporting. He has, a, he has a reputation. He's a Mr. Fix-It. Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That I mean, he's the person who comes in and, you know, and, and, he's, and he was viewed as somebody who was loyal to Scott and would do things in a way that would not, you know, rub the governor the wrong way, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, and, and, you know, and that goes all the way back to, you know, his time when he was general counsel and, and, and other functions like that. And and you mentioned it too when he came in, uh, you know, for the Broward Elections Office, there were there was a lot of criticism of that of that move. But then afterwards, even Democrats were praising what he was doing. That what he there, accomplished. There people, yeah, I think there were generally uh, uh, there were people who were uh, praiseworthy of his. I, there were a few things he did. Um, I know that got uh, got some criticism, uh, you know, from editorial boards and stuff like that. It felt like he was a little bit heavy handed in some things. Uh, but for the most part, he 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 garnered good marks. There weren't any major black eyes with Broward, and uh, I guess for everyone else, the the most important, you know, one of the biggest things was the vote got counted in Broward in 2020 relatively quickly and without without many problems. All right, so we have we have the election coming up this year in November, and I'm just wondering, what do you think is going to be like the biggest challenge for him in this new role? Well, I, I think the challenge is going to be is if they if you have an environment in Florida where you're going to have in it where they're going to be inundated with a lot of complaints and whether or not they're going to be chasing down a lot of things that really don't have any merit. I mean, I think that's and, and where does that go? And, and and like I said before, you have some supervisors who are privately concerned that they're going to get some sort of inquiry as to the, their actions from Antonacci's office. Um, yeah, it's a, it's important to remember here in Florida, we have this sort of slightly decentralized system of elections. The legislature sets the law and you have the Department of State, but at the end, elections are run on a local level. You have local supervisors who are responsible for, uh, for, for tallying the vote, for maintaining the machines, for being responsible for yeah, registering people to vote, but you know, and, and you know all what? that stuff. But but here's the other thing, and I, I never thought I'd ever say this, but after the 2020 election, we saw basically a person in power put pressure on the little guys and say, 
you know what, I need these votes or I need this. Is there any concern with, you know, Mr. Antonacci that the Republican Party in any way could put pressure on him? Well, and I think that is what the critics of this proposal would say that they are worried about as to, as to how this is all going to play out. I, but again, what I would say is it's interesting is you've seen in the post-mortem of 2020, you saw some states exert more central control over the uh, elections. And um, I think Georgia is a perfect example where they, they, they really changed the laws in terms of that. I, I think in Florida, again, there have been, there have been proposals in the past, including some proposals that came and they were being uh, sort of uh, bandied about by the DeSantis administration and bandied about by the Scott administration, where you would have much more direct control of the secretary of state over these local election supervisors. Those proposals have sort of floated up and then they kind of been shot down. It, uh, it, it, there's there's essentially this this notion that had been floated up several times of what they call binding directives, the ability of the Secretary of State to order the supervisors to, to, to do things in a certain way. It became it didn't become an issue issue. But uh, important thing to remember is that right ahead of the 2020 election, the, de- the Department of State put out a memo in which they said to some supervisors, we don't think you're using drop boxes properly. And you should use drop boxes in a certain fashion. A lot mm. of supervisors looked at that memo and said, well, we don't agree with your interpretation of Florida law. And we're going to keep doing it our way Yeah. now. And, 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 and so that's what, now what happened is the legislature came back, changed the law to make it clear about, no, this is what we meant about drop boxes. And, and obviously that law got challenged. It's still tied up in litigation, but the point is, is that, the concern about how this is relationship between this new office and the supervisors is, is there, will, will there be an attempt by that office to exert pressure? Now, again, I, I as I said, uh, democratic uh, supervisor, Mark Early here in Leon County says he trusts Antonacci will follow the law and that everything will be copacetic going forward. Knock it on wood. We have a good smooth, another smooth election and just leave it at that. Gary, always a pleasure. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me on. All right. Gary Finat, reporter with Politico, covering politics and policy. Find more of his reporting on this on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, you don't have to become a first responder to get trained in disaster response tactics. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. The next storm that comes around... It could be you or your neighbor that gets to an emergency situation even before the first responders arrive. Would you know what to do? Well, the city of Miami is bringing back a federally funded program that trains and equips people to join a community emergency response team or a CERT team. Now, to explain, I spoke with Robert Evia. He is the outgoing emergency manager and assistant fire chief with the city of Miami Fire Rescue. After this week, He'll be taking over as the city's deputy fire chief. Can you give me some examples of when these community teams made a difference? Is that do you have it like an anecdote? I'll tell you when the community, in my experience, a personal experience where the community made a difference. Um, the Department of Fire Rescue here in the city of Miami. We, we are also the host agency for one of the twenty-eight federal urban search and rescue teams, Florida, Florida Task Force 2. And these are the urban search and rescue teams that you see respond to natural and man-made disasters throughout the country. This team has also traveled internationally to, to Haiti before. Um, 
And I deployed with them to the Panhandle um, after Hurricane Michael. Uh, we actually deployed uh, while the hurricane was was approaching the coast uh, to the area of the Panhandle, and then moved into Mexico Beach, where most of the destruction from Hurricane Michael uh, occurred. Uh, and if you recall, it was, it was a Category Five hur hurricane that that hit landfall. It was complete devastation. So when we responded there, we quickly found a group of residents that lived in Mexico Beach. And what they did prior to the storm is they went house by house and checked on their neighbors and found out who was going to reside and weather the storm there in their home, who was leaving and who was on vacation or, or, or who didn't live there because they just had a vacation home and the home was empty. As a result of that, we were able to focus and find all of the uh, victims, some who, who um, survived the storm and others, unfortunately, that, that had uh, succumbed to, to, the, to the storm. Had that community team had not given us the information, we would never have known that. We would have gone there and not known who really was there, who wasn't there, because you're, you're looking under rubble. That's a really clear event of how a community emergency response team would work. Now, they didn't have the CERT vest, and I, don't even, I really don't know if they had a CERT program there in Mexico Beach. But it'd be exactly the types of actions that a CERT team would do. What's the, what's the origin of the CERT team, what, the, the Community Emergency Response Team? Where does that, where does that come from? The uh, fire department in, in Los Angeles traveled to, I believe, Japan is the story. And they saw how the communities really responded and were played a vital role in the re response and recovery efforts post-earthquakes in Japan. They brought that concept back to the LA Fire Department and really utilized it. Then it began to grow. After 9-11, uh, the Citizen Corps actually grew and, and was funded in, in the United States, and the, and the program has really taken off from them from there. Now we have like over 2,700 CERT programs in the United States. There's over, over 600,000 CERT team members in different um, municipalities and counties th throughout the United States, and it really has grown. What does it take to be a, a member of, of a CERT team? What, what, what kind of qualifications do you need? You need to be um, a willing participant. You need to love your community and want to be in, involved in your community. Here in the city of Miami, um, you have to be a resident or work in the city of Miami. Not work for, but work in the city of Miami. Uh, 18 years old, have to have a government ID and be willing to undergo a background check. Um, from the Miami Police Department. Those are our requirements. The CERT programs throughout the country set their own requirements. There are teen CERT programs in the United States that allow uh, members to be 16 years old and older. That's something that we uh, may consider in the future. Uh, there's also business CERTs where they'll go to a, a building and train the building on CERT. So the requirement is just to be wanting, want, you know, a willingness to learn and a willingness to help your community uh, before and after a, whether it be a natural or man-made disaster or any other type of event that affects the, the community. Is there a lot of training involved? The initial training is between 24 and 28 hours. And we're going to offer it both in hybrid on a weekend and during weekend uh, during weeknights so that, you know, those who have a schedule with work, we want to be able to open up to as many people as possible. And then twice a year, there'll be like eight hour refresher training for the CERT team members. So it's a little bit of training and you have to stay involved. It's not like a one-time thing. You, you, have, you, know, you have to be involved with the team throughout the year, but it's really not um, an arduous amount of training. It's not really something that's not doable, even for someone who has a full-time job. 
So the program uh, wasn't offered in the, you know these last couple of years because of COVID. Has has it been challenging to get the program running up again? So the program started in the city of Miami since around um, like the early 2000s after 9-11. And then it went dormant after 2006. Um, and I moved into my position as emergency manager in 2019, right before the pandemic. I moved into my position as emergency manager in, in uh, late October of 2019. And this is one of the, the priorities that I set really early on that I wanted to get this program up and running because I just think it just you know, learning about it, it was just an amazing program that, you know, we need to revisit this and we really need to bolster this up in the city of Miami. As you know, uh, a few months later, uh, three months into my role as an emergency manager, we were dealing with, um, you know, worldwide pandemic. Um, so the CERT program took a backseat until we were able to focus on other things that weren't COVID. I would say beginning in um, early 21, um, even though we were still dealing with the pandemic, but we were starting to, to get our, our head above water, we started putting the program together. We have a, um, an anti-terrorism grant. It's really a grant that's focused on, on terrorism, called it Urban Area Security Initiative Grant here in the city of Miami. And UOC grant is, is the way that it's coined. It's a regional grant that is for um, jurisdictions all the way from Palm Beach to Key West. But the city of Miami, uh, and particularly uh, the Division of Emergency Management is the administrator of that grant for the whole region. And one of the domestic priorities nationally is community resilience. So this program fits very nicely under that grant. So this program is completely funded by the grant. So beginning in 2021, we, we established a line item for CERT. We were able to invest some money into the program uh, and buy equipment and uh, trailer and really make a, a state-of-the-art CERT program. Uh, there were delays with um, supply chain issues as a result of, of the pandemic as well that we met, that we had to deal with. But over the course of about a year, we were able to have everything set up where now we were able to start offering the courses to the community. Now that we have the, the logistical side taken care of, we have the equipment and the, and the vehicles and everything a certain team member would need, that once they're trained, we can actually put it, the team uh, in motion if a disaster were to occur. I'm speaking with Robert Evia. He is the outgoing emergency manager and assistant fire chief with the City of Miami Fire Rescue. After this week, he'll be taking over as the city's deputy fire chief. We're talking about Miami's community emergency response team. Broward, Monroe, and Palm Beach counties also have similar initiatives. And you can find more information about how you can get involved. It's on our social media, WLRN Sundial. I mean, looking at, at how you're set up, the other thing, too, I found interesting is you're also gathering data, like like who in the neighborhood is evacuated after a storm and things like that, right? For sure. So before you can manage a problem, you really have to understand what you're dealing with. You, can, you, can't, you don't have solutions until you correctly identify a problem. So assessment post-disaster is very important to us. So the same tools that our professional responders use that we use for surveying the community um, to take a, a GPS coordinate, a photo, log what the issue is, whether it's flooding or down trees or power lines or, or structures that are, have been destroyed, either partially or completed. We give our first responders a tool where they can use their that Apple or, or Android device. And as long as they get Wi-Fi at some point or cellular data, that information that they're entering into their phone through an app gets sent electronically back to the EOC. And we're getting a live 
view or close to live view of what the 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 conditions are after a a disaster. This is the same tool we're get, we'll give the cert members. They will be trained on the same tool. So for me as an emergency manager, I have this complete group of community members that really know their neighborhood, that know every street, that know where to look. Why wouldn't I want that information? Of course I want that information. And, and I want a format that I'm used to getting it so I can use it in the emergency operations center. So this isn't, isn't like, oh, we're just doing this for smoke and mirrors and it's a community, it's a good community feel good thing. No, this is a real program that can really have an impact in the community post-storm and provide us with information that we can use that can save people's lives. And, and, and having that close relationship with the community. I wondered what you've learned from different residents you've worked with over the years. One of the things that I really say I struggle with, having been you know, a firefighter, I'm behind a desk now, right? But I, I responded you know, for, for 20 years to calls is that as a firefighter, we really deal with the community only on an emergency basis. We, we deal with them only, you know, when, when matters are the worst for them in their lives, right? This, this is, could be the worst day of many people's lives when we're interacting with them for 10 or 15 minutes. It's great from the Department of Fire Rescue to be able to interact with the community on a non-emergency basis. So what I've heard from residents is like, it's great to really understand what fire rescue, the police department, these professional first responders have to offer us when we can train together and communicate and learn about, um, you know, how response actually works in a non-emergency basis, right? Well, we, we can interact in a non-emergency basis. But what, what are those conversations yeah. like with the volunteers? Have any of them ever shared the why with you, you know, why they decided to sign up? One of our most active areas is the West Grove area for certain. And when we had our kickoff, uh, the mayor was kind enough to to stand behind and all the commissioners in the city of Miami really supported this program. We had we had a press conference and a few of the previous certain members uh, came out and spoke. And one of them even spoke at the press conference and, and talked about how great it made them feel as a as a important, vital part of their community. And one one comment that really stuck out to me is that they are the first responders, right? The community is the first responder. And that's true, even for you and for me in my home. If there's there's an emergency or something happens and we walk over, we're there before you know the the professional responders arrive, right? Even if nine one one takes five minutes to get there, you know, for the first five minutes, it's your neighbor that's there. I want to know about your passion for why you do this. I, I, it really all ties one together. You know, I can say I've never really had a job that it hasn't been about helping other people. Um, I, I don't really see myself. Um, never have, you know, sitting behind uh, a computer and looking at spreadsheets or it's just not, it's after doing this so long, I really enjoy being able to be at the side of someone who's having a tough time, whether it be a medical emergency or a fire or the, the, it's the interpersonal um, connection with the community that drives me. So uh, the neighboring counties, uh, Broward, Monroe, Mm -hmm. Palm Beach, they have similar uh, programs or initiatives, do, do, do the teams work together? Or I guess is this program becoming so standard now that you know, you're all teaching the same lessons anyway? Right. So the, the curriculum is a standard curriculum. It's, it's released by FEMA. So we're, we're not teaching, you know, what we, our own thing. It's a, it's a standard curriculum by, um, by FEMA. Miami-Dade County has a CERT program. Uh, Fort Lauderdale has a CERT program. Um, those are probably two of the more established CERT programs here. Miami Beach, I know, uh, does as well. 
up to now, the CERT program since I've been involved since 2019, but again, you're talking at, at a time during the pandemic, uh, we really haven't um, trained together, but I do see that changing. I would love to work with the other bordering municipalities. You know, we, 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 we cross, you know, borders here by crossing a street here in the city of Miami or in another jurisdiction. So I would love to work with those other CERT teams. So it is hurricane season, of course. We're in the middle of it. Um, what tips or advice do you have for residents during this time, the things they should know and think about? We've learned hard lessons here in South Florida through Hurricane Andrew and now in the Panhandle in Florida with, with Hurricane Michael, that a the storm intensity can change very quickly. It, it, it's not a gradual process sometimes. So keeping that in mind and being in hurricane season, our busiest month for hurricane season in um, South Florida is September. So now is, is the time, it's the latest time to make sure that all these preparation measures are taken. Um, don't think that it's too late. Well, hurricane season, you know, we're already into it and nothing's happened. No, our busiest time is, is yet to come. So make sure you have your non-perishables. Make sure you have your water. Make sure you have your prescription medications. And anybody who's lived here long enough, we you should know better. You should know better by now. Robert, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you. Thanks. And thank you for what you do and keeping us safe. I really do. Thank you so much. Again, that is Robert Evia. He is the outgoing emergency manager and assistant fire chief with the City of Miami Fire Rescue. He is soon taking over as the city's deputy fire chief. Well, still to come, remembering a sports broadcast legend of Miami. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. For sports fans who've lived in Miami and Broward counties over the last 50 years, you've likely come across the name Hank Goldberg. Hank was a broadcaster for the 70s Miami's Dolphins. He later started doing football and horse racing for ESPN, and he had a couple of radio shows in Miami. He was someone who wanted to break the big story. John Hammer here. Yeah, all right, who is it? It's, uh, I demand to know, this is my town, I gotta break the story. Everybody knows me here, I'm the ins- Hey, how you doing? I own this town. <laughs> Today we're gonna look back on the life of Hank Goldberg and his role in sports radio in Miami. He passed away recently at the age of 82. We're joined now by a man who spent many of those years working with Hammering Hank, Joe Zagaki. Joe, welcome to the program. Lewis, thank you for having me and having, having hope you're having a great afternoon so far. Uh, you know what I am. I, and, and, you know, listening to that, so I, I didn't have the connection with, with uh, Hank that you did. I was a sports guy for many years, uh, you know, covering South Florida teams. And I would run into Hank at, at the events, obviously, at the different practices and, and so forth. And he was just one of those guys, like, he stood out in the crowd, all the reporters you knew him at least, and and he was an interesting fellow to say the least. But I mean, for you, remembering him, thinking back now, what 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 jumps out at you? What memory jumps out at you most? Uh, there's just so many. Probably just that he was uh, this uh, Damon Runyon like character. He loved storytelling. He loved chasing stories. He loved telling stories, and I think more than anything, he loved being the center of the story. And when you were with him. You, were, you would get caught up in that whirlwind, that hurricane that he would create. It's almost was, it was almost like being a part of uh, Entourage. Remember the TV show 
from uh, several years ago with Hank leading the way and being a part of his entourage and meeting this <laughs> cast of characters. It was uh, a very, very, he was a very interesting person to be around. When did you first meet him? It's interesting. I, I first met him the very first day that I attempted to get into the business. The story goes, I was basically in high school, 16 years old, and I had heard through the grapevine that uh, WIOD in Miami was going to be looking for a sports intern. They were not an all-sports station. So I had uh, an interview with the program director at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I went to the radio station. I was in the lobby, and the first person that came out, he wandered into the lobby, was Hank Goldberg. And, and, and being as affable as he is, he said, who are you, kid? And what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, well, Mr. Goldberg, I'm here to meet Mr. Anderson, the, the, the program director, to work in sports. You are, are you? Well, come with me. And he opened the door for me and basically opened the door to the radio business to me on my very first day. Wow. You know, I, I've, I've always wondered, and, and anybody who's ever seen him knows that he had the prop with him, but how did he get the nickname Hammer? He uh, obviously was a big, bombastic personality on the radio, volatile at times, would have volcanic explosions. As I grew into my own job, we became co-host of the Sportsline radio show, and one night he obliterated a caller, and as Hank would do, his arms were waving in the air, and as he was making his point, and he came down hard with his fist on the table, and I said, wow, you hammered that caller, Hank. You are hammering Hank Goldberg. <laughs> All right, so it was you. You gave him the name. Oh, and, and, and he kept it, and it worked. It was, it, it, you know, it was one of those beautiful names. He embraced it. Absolutely. He, he embraced it. He loved it. I mean, and and we'll get to that in a minute because I, I I did want like I've listened to his show for many years, uh, you know, when I was working down here, uh, you know what's interesting. So he was here when Miami had really almost nothing except the Dolphins, and and you know he worked for the team, uh, you know, as a broadcaster, and then of course he was here as more and more teams joined in. But as we heard in in the clip at the beginning, you know, he wanted to make this his town. And, and I wondered, like, you know, really, was it his town or, you know, is it just something that, that that was part of his persona? Well, I think it was his town for a while. I think he, he, he grew into it. Uh, I think, you know, the guys that were his uh, predecessors, Larry King, Bob Sheridan, uh, I think Hank probably took a little bit of their personality and adapted it to his own. Uh, Larry King obviously was on the radio here and kind of opened the door for Hank and so did Bob Sheridan. Uh, Hank worked with Rick Weaver, who at the time was the voice of the Miami Dolphins. As you mentioned, we only had the Dolphins. So to a certain extent, you could say in the early 70s that Rick owned the town. He was the voice of the Dolphins. He had a license plate that said the voice on it. Uh, and the Dolphins <laughs> were undefeated, right? He, uh, uh, but Hank kind of followed in with Larry King. They ran that same crowd. And then it just evolved because Larry King moved on and Rick moved on. And then with more, uh, more chances, more, more mediums available to Hank, television, radio, uh, print, uh, he was able to have a, a footprint in all of those mediums. And then uh, obviously the center was here. And as Miami is today, it was then for some reason, 
Miami is always the center of attention. No matter what, something is always going on here. And therefore, people would say, we got to go see Hank Goldberg. The Super Bowl is there. He'll get us into Joe's. Uh, Hank will get us tickets. Whatever the case might be, Miami was always a center of attention. Every city needs a guy. And for us, for a long time, that guy was Hank Goldberg. And, and, you know, not just the influence that he had here in town. I thought what was interesting was that when he would do his spots on ESPN, for a long time, he was the only person who was ever allowed to talk about gambling because that was like a, that, that was a, a, a taboo topic. Don't talk about gambling. We, we used to hear Jimmy the Greek, you know, the, the, the famous broadcaster of the 70s and 80s on, I believe it was CBS, and he would mention, you know, the, the spread of the game or, you know, something like that. But when it, when it came to, like, the 80s and 90s, nobody talked about gambling except Hank. Why do you think they let him do it? He was perfect for it. He was, uh, there was always a common theme for Hank. He was in that world. I think he liked that gambling world because uh, it brought him the eccentric and the unusual, which led to more storytelling. There weren't many guys at that time that had the same connections as Hank uh, in the gambling industry that under even understood it. Now everybody talks about overs and unders, but in those days, Nobody understood what a prop bet was or what the over-under was or even how they got to those numbers. And he understood uh, how Las Vegas worked. He understood the the track of being a notorious gambler. Uh, He understood what went into making the odds. I don't think people today really understand what goes into making the odds and why they are tilted one way or the other. But he did, and most importantly – he was able to explain it in a very understandable way. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, is that he was really big into horse racing. And for, for a long time, I mean, really even till now, I, I would say, I mean, a long, long time ago, horse racing was a huge sport in America. And I, I don't think so now. But he kept it alive. He kept it, you know, he, he was one, I think, that kept people talking about it. Um, even if they didn't know anything about it. Again, I'm talking with Joe Zagaki. Now you know him as the radio play-by-play voice of The U, the Miami Hurricanes. We're talking about the legacy of sports broadcaster Hank Goldberg, who died recently at the age of 82. Uh, Zagaki worked with Goldberg for many, many years. And you can learn more about Goldberg's work, his legacy. It's on our social media at WLRN Sundial. You, so he got you in the door, but mm-hmm. eventually you became his boss, didn't you? I did, yes. I <laughs> became his boss, and I, I still called him Mr. Goldberg. Until I figured out that I, until I figured out I couldn't call him Mr. Goldberg or Rick Weaver, Mr. Weaver, because I was now their boss. So uh, with, with Hank, you, you could not be afraid of confrontation or conflict. Uh, you are going to have confrontation with him one way or the other. Whether, as you mentioned, you were in the horse industry, if you owned a racetrack down here, uh, you know, John Bernetti was one of his favorite targets. So whether or not, whether you were um, uh, a target of his because you were in that industry, you were a caller, you were the program director, or in my case, the sports director, uh, you were going to have some kind of confrontation with Hank. He kept you on your toes. He said what he felt. Um, He said it with authority. Uh, He was not ever really mean-spirited about it. And when it was all said and done, uh, it was business. You moved forward. It was a little awkward, but... um, 
I think uh, the best thing you get from Hank is earning his respect. So I think along the way I was able to accomplish that. He is a challenge. I'm not going to tell you it wasn't a challenge uh, from a management perspective, but um, very well, one of the most worthwhile times of my career. You know, one of the interesting things, I had a little taste of it early in my career, sports talk radio. Um, what's unique about it is that so little of it is scripted. And you have to be someone who can talk for long stretches and, and know how to jump from one conversation to the other. He was just so good at it. What what was it about him? You know, he seemed to excel at it. I think um, to a certain extent, it might have led... Uh, it might have been because of his newspaper background, his father being in the newspaper business, Hank being in, in the advertising business. So I think he understood all of those things. And I think he he really enjoyed telling a good story. Now, it's one thing to be able to tell a good story, but not every host understands the hook or understands how to play a room or play the audience. Not every host uh, is a person that's, uh, every, you know, not going to take themselves serious. So I think Hank understood how to take people on an adventure and take them through that story. Maybe he would embellish, maybe, <laughs> maybe he didn't believe a particular part of it, but he knew in order to draw the audience in, he had to go down a certain Avenue. I thought he was a very good wordsmith and he, in his prime, he when, he, when that red light went on, he knew, number one, it was show business. So he was fully engaged, and and he understood how to do a monologue. He took great pride in a monologue and how to bring people in. And as you mentioned, sports talk radio can take you uh, all over the place. And right. he was always, always well-prepared. Definitely. It's, I- sports talk radio is like being a columnist but writing a column every single day. Exactly, exactly. I wanted to play this clip. This is a beautiful clip where he's showing his, paying his respects uh, to the late Don Shula. He was a very demanding coach, but his players still, you know, loved him. And uh, he was, you know, he said something to me once. We were talking about uh, a coach who had a tough year and had let go of his staff and, he said that was something he would never do because the buck always stopped with him. He knew everything that was going on with that team. He was so respected in the community that when the, when the Miami was having problems with riots and and the, uh, this is a beautiful just you know as you said like a monologue just talking about uh, when Don Shula passed away and and. Uh, the respect that he had for him. Look, Hank was loved by so many people, but as you pointed out earlier, sometimes he would rip into people on air if he didn't agree with you or didn't like what you said. And he had his battles with other people, like with Dan Lebitard. You know, did he have a persona on air that was different than his persona off air? I I think so. I mean, Hank on the air would, would fight for what he thought was right and what he thought he would fight for, um, you know, this is a time now where everybody shouts louder than the other person. So perhaps he got into that trap of, of, hey, look at me, look at me. This is, I'm the one who broke this story. You know, maybe a little bit of that mentality uh, seeps in later in his career. But off the air, I think Hank was probably one of the most generous people I've ever known in my life. I think he had a big heart. I think at times would be very sentimental, came from a great background, 
a great family. And uh, despite being bombastic and uh, a bit irascible on the air at times, <laughs> I think off the air, he always had really good perspective and, um, uh, you know, respected people. And I think sometimes, you know, people want respect, but you have to give respect back. And Hank was able to do that. Yeah. Two-way street with Hank. You know what? And let me finish real, real briefly. Again, you know, how are you going to remember him most? I'm going to remember him as a as this titanic force in my life. You know, this person that came into my life, paved the way, and always wanted to do the right thing loudly. Yeah, I tell you what, and I didn't know him personally, but from, you know, seeing him so often and listening to him so often, I'm going to remember him as, you know, he was a force. He absolutely was. And someone who was just really entertaining to listen to. Joe, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for sharing these beautiful stories with us. Lewis, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Joe Zagaki, again, radio play-by-play voice of the Miami Hurricanes. And how do you remember Hank? You can share your story, your thoughts on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Well, that's our program for this Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. Coming up tomorrow on the show, uh, you know, recently, I don't know if you saw this story, Google, a Google employee claimed that one of the artificial intelligence computers at the company had become sentient. Are we edging closer to the day that machines are going to take over the world? Well, there's a University of Miami computer engineer who's going to join us to clear some things up about supercomputers and how smart they are. He also has some interesting things to say about how he's using AI when dealing with fake news. Really interesting stuff. That's coming up tomorrow. Also, it's Wildlife Thursdays. We're going to get slimy. We're going to talk about giant African snails. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.